From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from, for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. Thank you, Tanya, for reading that. Uh, I want to uh, invite you all... Again, I want to take this time to invite you all to the community group celebration this, uh, this afternoon after church. If for no other reason, it's free food, really good food. Uh, I, honestly, I won't, even be, I won't be offended if you just say, hey, look, I'm really not interested in community groups at all. <clears throat> I just really came for the food. You could say that. That's fine. Wait, we don't mind. Uh, but I want to invite you to that. I wanted to share with you uh, the community group that I've been a part of for the last year and a half. Uh, a couple of weeks ago... Uh, our community group did something that really impressed me, to be honest. I was really impressed with our community group. <clears throat> and you might be thinking, well, what is it that you're impressed about with your community group? Uh, are you impressed, you know, with their extent of Bible knowledge? Is that, is that what you're really impressed, impressed by? And actually, yes, a, a number of them know the Bible really well. And it's been exciting to see how they've even grown in that, in their, in their grip and their understanding of Scripture over the last couple of years. Uh, but that's not what impressed me a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you, might, you might ask, or you might think, well, what impressed you? Is it, was it sort of the, the level of openness and honesty uh, that is taking place uh, in your community group? And, and, and I'd say, well, yeah, that's something that has grown over the last year and a half. That's something that, that has been great to see people. Our conversations going beyond just sort of talking about the Bible. I think sometimes in a lot of Bible studies and community groups, we can just talk about the Bible, sort of like we're interested in the Bible uh, in the same way that you might be, someone might be interested in football, and they'll sit around and talk about football, or, or they might be interested in World War II history, so they love getting together with other people and talking about World War II history. Some people, they just like to get together and just talk about the Bible. It's like a club that gets together and talks about the Bible, and, and that's, you know, it's, you know, there's worse things to be interested in than the Bible, for sure, uh, but, but, but I think that when, I, when a community group is, is starting to really get at what the Bible is about, that the conversation is going to go beyond just talking about the Bible, but, but what does it mean for my life? And, and what are the issues in my life to which the Bible is speaking? And so there's a level of openness and honesty that we hope to see in, in our community groups, not pushing anybody beyond where they are, but creating an environment that over time can be a place where they can, can be comfortable sharing What's going on in their lives in an environment where then the Bible becomes not just an academic exercise, but something that we can use to really apply to our lives and bring change? And, and that's, yeah, that's something that I've seen happening in our community group, a greater sense of openness and authenticity and, and encouragement, taking the gospel and applying it to one another's lives. But that's not what impressed me several weeks ago. You know what impressed me several weeks ago? Is that our community group threw an awesome party. Our community group threw an amazing party. And did you know that, that I think that throwing a great party is a really gospel-centered, biblical thing to do? That in fact, and we've talked about this before, when you... When you read in the Bible, and the Bible talks about the age to come, and the Bible talks about the time when, when, when Christ will return and he will renew and he will restore all things. He will bring peace 
and he will bring shalom and there will be harmony and unity. One of the images, one of the dominant images that the Bible uses to describe that is a party. Describes the age to come as an age with, with, with great food and fine wine and, and it's just a celebration. And so throwing a great party can be a great way of, of a sort of enacting, sort of like a living parable, a living parable of, of the age to come. And so our, our community group, we threw a great party, and, and we invited uh, people, we invited neighbors and friends. Half of the people who came to our community group party were not from our community group, were not even a part of our church. I mean, how many church events can you think of, right? There are very few that you can throw where you get half the people aren't even from the church. Half the people that came to that party weren't really from our church. And, and though we didn't talk about the kingdom of God, my hope is that at least at an affective level, we were able to experience and embody the, the joy, the peace, the harmony of what the kingdom of God is to, is to be. But of course, throwing a, a great party is not without its obstacles. It's not without its barriers. It's not without its difficulties and challenges. Uh, and in particular, our party faced a, a very literal barrier, and that's the barrier on Rivervale Road. The party was, was hosted by J.D. and Angela Dunn at their house, and they live, they live north of here off of Rivervale Road, and it normally takes three minutes to get from the church to their house. Now it takes 10, 15, I don't know how many minutes it takes a it takes a long time to get there, and I, I kind of joke with them that, that I'm glad that when they moved to town, they weren't doing the road construction or they never would have found our church. You wonder what sort of northern constituency we're going to lose during this time, right? Northerners, stay strong. Stay strong, right? So there's this, this, this barrier, and, and you know, I don't know if you've ever experienced the frustration of there's somewhere you want to get. You want to get there. You could see where you want to get, but there's a barrier. I remember when I lived in Boston, uh, Boston is, is a city that's not really designed very well. Uh, in fact, I don't really know that it's designed at all. I think it just sort of happened. Uh, it just sort of happened, and when they were designing it, they weren't designing it for cars. They were designing it for horses. Uh, so it's, it's challenging. You'll be driving through Boston, and you'll see where you want to go. You'll see it, but there's a barrier there, and it would take two minutes to walk there, but to get there is going to take like 45 minutes, and you don't know how to get there. Because there's this barrier that prevents you from getting where you want to go. Isn't it true that in our own spiritual lives, there are often barriers that can prevent us from getting where we want to go? Maybe we, 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 we see, uh, we see the, the hope of the gospel, but there are barriers. And there can be all kinds of different barriers that can prevent us from fully embracing the faith. There are lots of different kinds of barriers. Sometimes the barriers can come in the forms of questions. Questions that we have about Christianity. Questions that we have about our faith. Maybe you're here today and you're new and you're visiting and you're not sure what you think about Christianity. And the reality is you have questions. There are barriers that, that are preventing you from from fully embracing it, you know, and, and maybe it's, it's questions, things like, you know, if, if God is really a loving God and he's really sovereign, then why is there so much pain and suffering in this world? Right? If God is good and loving and he's sovereign, then, then why is there so much pain and suffering in this world? And that, that's a barrier for you. Right? Maybe another barrier for you is, you, you know, you hear Christians talking about how Jesus is the only way. And you're like, oh, gosh, that just sounds so narrow-minded and exclusive, and you don't understand it, and it's this barrier that, that hinders you, you know? And, and maybe you say, you know, what is it? If I embrace Christianity, does that, mean, does that mean that I can no longer believe anything that science teaches? Is that, is that what that means? And so that, that becomes a, a barrier that, that hinders you from being able to fully embrace the faith. And what I want to do is I want to invite you... Uh, after Easter, we're going to do a two-month series called Barriers. A two-month series called Barriers. And we're just, we're going to look at, at some of the most common intellectual questions and barriers that, 
that often hinder people from embracing the faith. That's going to be after Easter. But I think as we come to our passage today, already right here in this passage, I suppose that that there just might be a barrier here, right? Because we look at this and we're like, what is going on here? What is going on with this poor guy, Ananias? What, 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 wait a minute, what is going on? This guy, okay, so he, he lies about how much money he's giving to the church, and so God just strikes him dead. Just boom, falls down and dies. And you're thinking, that's a barrier for me. But where's the grace? Where's the grace of God in this, right? I mean, this doesn't seem like Jesus. Does this seem like something Jesus would do? This, this seems more like something Darth Vader would do. Right? Captain Nita or whatever his name is. I don't remember which one it was. He, he, he lets the, the Millennium Falcon get away, and, and then he has, you know, a little one-on-one with, uh, with Darth, and it doesn't go well, and what happens? He falls down and dies. And then another imperial admiral, he's, he, he messes up. They're, they're, they're attacking uh, the rebels at the planet, planet Hoth, and this one admiral makes a tactical error and, and ruins the surprise. Uh, and so the rebels find out about it, and they're able to escape and all of this. And, and, and then, then Darth calls them up for a little FaceTime chat. And uh, apparently Darth can even do this through FaceTime, and he tries to explain it, and, and what happens? He fell down and died. I mean, that's what this seems like, right? This doesn't seem like the kingdom of God. This seems like the dark side. What's going on here, right? What's going on here? And I, I think the heart of the issue here, where is the grace of God? And, and, and the, the, the question that emerges here is how can a God of grace be a God of judgment at the same time? How can a God of love and grace be a God of judgment at the same time? I'm not going to dive into that very much today at all. In fact, I'm just going to tease you a little bit with that and hope that you'll come back in April where we'll spend an entire message just talking about that question. But I'll address it just a little bit in terms of how it comes up in this passage. Let me just say a couple of things. First of all, what you discover happening here with Ananias and then his his wife, same thing happens to uh, Sapphira in the next couple of verses, right? Uh, Because she knew about it. But what happens to them it does not happen very often in the Bible. Okay, that's the first thing to know. I think there's this perception that this sort of thing just happens all the time in the Bible. But, but if you actually go through, you'll discover this sort of immediate judgment on someone like this is, is quite rare. In fact, the reality is, as you go through the Bible, what we discover is that God warns about judgment a whole lot more than he measures it out. He warns about judgment a lot. He warns about it a whole lot more than he measures it out. But in terms of actually measuring it out in this sort of swift, immediate nature, it doesn't happen that much. In fact, what you discover is that the Israelites, um, instead of being frustrated with the judgment of God, they're actually frustrated with his grace. They're actually frustrated with how slow he is to bring judgment. In Psalm 3, for example, uh, David is, is really frustrated because his his enemies, who he's trying to live for God, he's trying to be faithful and righteous, and his enemies, they keep taunting him and attacking him, and they keep saying, your God will never come. Your God won't do anything about what we're doing. No, no, he's not going to deliver you. And, and, and David's like, come on, God, aren't you good? Aren't you just? Why aren't you stopping these people? Why aren't you bringing judgment upon these people? And another, let me just read another verse in Psalm Psalm, well, I marked it, so I don't remember which one it is, but it's in Psalms. Psalms, here it is, Psalm 74, verse 10. Crying out to God, how long will the enemy mock you, O God? Will the foe revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. You see, the Israelites, are, they're frustrated they're frustrated with how, how he, he doesn't seem to be very swift in his judgment. In fact, he's more in Psalm 103. The, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. We, we saw as we went through the book of Jonah last year that the, the story of the book of Jonah, it, it's not really a, a, just to encourage you that if you get swallowed by a fish, you might be okay. That's not really what the book of Jonah is about. 
really, the, the central message of the book of Jonah, it's all about Jonah being frustrated with how compassionate God is. He's frustrated that God won't bring judgment against the Ninevites. He wants God to go Darth Vader on the Ninevites, and he won't do it. So you discover that, that more often than not, the question is not, well, God, God, why do you bring judgment? The question is, why don't you bring judgment? And, and, and to be honest with you, I, I think it's really only in the comfortability of suburban America that the question comes in that fashion. You see, for much of the rest of the world, they resonate more with the Israelite cry. And the re- relative comfortability of America, where, where we aren't, by and large, the victims of gross injustice. So we're like, you know, we don't get judgment. We don't understand that. But when you live in parts of the world where gross injustice is happening all the time, you see, for a lot of people in the world, the problem, the barrier that they have isn't that God brings judgment. The barrier is his grace. The barrier is why doesn't he bring it quicker? Because the reality is, is that this is an exception. This doesn't happen that often, that most of the time what you find in the Bible is is a God who's slow to anger. He's compassionate and gracious. So the question is, why here? Why here? Why why here? Acts chapter 5, things seem like they're going pretty well. For the early church, things are looking good. You know, lots of great things are happening. People are getting healed. People are coming to know Jesus. Everything's looking great. And then, bam, falls down and dies. What's going on? Why here? Well, I think to, 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 to understand this, what can help is for us to go back. And I want to look at a couple of passages in the Old Testament where we see something similar happening. Okay, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to 1 Samuel 1 Samuel chapter 6, this is on page 267 of your pew Bibles. And we come to a passage that takes place about a thousand years before the coming of Christ. And the Israelites uh, are, they're in conflict with the Philistines. This is a time when they're battling the Philistines. And, and what they would do is when they would go into battle, they would take the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant was a, a box about the size of an office desk. And in the Ark of the Covenant, there was a copy of the law, the first five books of the Bible. Uh, and then in addition to the law, there was also the, the jar of manna. It was a, a jar that contained uh, some of the bread that the Israelites had received from God when they were wandering in the desert. And, and God commanded them to, to, uh, to, to take some of the bread and put it in a jar and keep it to remind them of God's faithfulness when they were in the desert. So they, there's that jar. And then also uh, there was Aaron's Rod, Aaron, the brother of Moses, there was Aaron's rod, and Aaron's rod had its own sort of miraculous history, and it's, it's kind of uh, debated, it's unclear whether or not the, the jar and the rod were actually in the ark or were outside of the ark, but they certainly went with the ark, and they would take the ark of the covenant when they were going into battle, they would take it with them with the hope that it would help them to win the battle, and usually it did, but unfortunately in the, in the passage that immediately precedes this, or in, this, in a couple chapters before, they actually lose the ark. The ark goes into the hands of the Philistines. Then a series of events take place, and the ark comes back to them. And what we read here is what happens when the, when the ark comes back to them in the Israelite town of Beth Shemeth. Long intro for a really short verse, because here's what it says. Verse 19, But God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And so here they are, they, they get in the ark of the Lord, and bam, 70 of them get knocked down by God. Darth Vader style. Flip over with me to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 6, page 300 of your pew Bibles, and here, it, it's farther along in the history of the people of Israel. They, they've just conquered the Philistines. David has become the king of Israel. And they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. This big celebration, bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And again here, chapter 6, verse 6. When they came to the threshing floor, <coughs> Nacon, uh, uh, floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out 
and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. Right? So, so the oxen stumbled. The, the ark's about, about to fall, and, and he reaches over to help it. Right? He's trying to, trying to help the, the ark of the covenant from falling. Right? It seems like a great guy, right? Yeah. You, you, you waiting, God, waiting for God to say, thank you. Thank you for protecting the ark and keeping it from falling. I really appreciate, really appreciate your effort. No. Verse 7, the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Darth Vader style. What is going on here? Well, what was the the purpose of the ark of the covenant? What What was it all about? The Ark of the Covenant was God's throne. The Ark of the Covenant was the very place where God rested. You find in a number of passages throughout the Bible, it says says that the Lord is enthroned between the cherubim. The Lord is enthroned between the cherubim. That's a way of saying the Lord is enthroned upon his ark because on the ark of the covenant, on the cover of it, there were two statues of these angelic figures called cherubim that were facing each other, sat on the ark. And so the Lord is enthroned between the cherubim. It's a way of saying he's sitting on his throne. The ark of God, the ark of the covenant was the throne of God. It was the very place where heaven and earth intersected and 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 and. And you discover later on that the ark is moved into the temple. When the temple is constructed, the ark is placed in the very center of the temple, in the Holy of Holies, in the innermost chamber of the temple. And the innermost chamber of the temple was a a place where, where nobody could ever enter except for the high priest, and he could only go in once a year. We read about this in... Leviticus, I was, you know, just reading through Leviticus in my quiet time this morning. I'm kidding. It's not true. I wasn't. It's not where most of us start, but it's a good one. Just give it some time. Give it some time. Leviticus chapter 16 is talking about Aaron, the first high priest. says, the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover of the ark, ark of the covenant, or else he will die. Because I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area. With a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, he is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. Uh, He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban, These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So, you see, there's this incredibly extensive process that Aaron must go through before he can even enter into the Holy of Holies. He can only do this once a year. Why is this? Because the presence of God is serious. The presence of God, the holiness of God is serious. It's something to be taken seriously. Angela read from Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, we read where Isaiah has this vision, has a vision of the temple has a vision of seeing God in the temple and says, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. Uh, seraphs, uh, we, we sing in the song, holy, 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 we sing cherubim and seraphim falling down before him, right? And, and now we see where that comes from. The cherubim, that, that comes from Leviticus or it comes from the description of the ark with the cherubim, and then, and then 
the seraphs, they're, they're other angelic figures which Isaiah describes in this vision. And so that song is taking those two and, and putting them together and describing being in the presence of God. So, so it goes on, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And then verse 4, at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. See, what they understood is that, is that to, to be in the Holy of Holies, to be in the presence of God there, that, 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 that's serious. That's serious. Now, we may ask ourselves at this point, well, what does any of this have to do with Ananias? Why? What's, what's the big deal? Okay, I mean, I don't see the ark anywhere near Ananias. Uh, he's not in the temple. Right? What, what, what's good? Right? He, right? Or is he? You see, what this is doing in Acts 5 is it's bringing up a theme which we've, we've seen emerging over and over again in the book of Acts, and that is that what the people who, of the followers of Jesus had come to understand is that when the Spirit came upon them at Pentecost, that they had become the temple of God. That following Jesus and becoming a member of His community, when you would gather together, you became the temple of God. And, and of course, it, it, it started back, Jesus, in his ministry, in his ministry, he was doing all of the things that were supposed to be done at the temple. So if you needed to be healed, you'd go to the temple. But then what was driving the religious authorities nuts in Jesus' day is that people weren't going to the temple, they were going to Jesus. And Jesus was healing them. And, and, and if you needed forgiveness of sin, you'd go to the temple and, and that's where they would atone for your sins. But people in the Gospels, they're all going to Jesus for forgiveness. And then what you discover in the book of Acts is the same thing. Now the Spirit of God, the very Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, has come upon the early Christian community. And now people are coming to them to be healed. People are, 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 are coming to them and, and they're experiencing the presence of God because when the Spirit had come upon them, they became the temple. And so what this passage is reminding us of is that if we are the temple of God, we must take the holiness of God seriously. Biblical scholar N.T. Wright puts it this way. In his commentary, on the book of Acts, and he talks about if you're studying the book of Acts and you're reading through it, you're excited about what you see in the book of Acts. He says, if we watch with excited fascination as the early church does wonderful healings, stands up to the bullying authorities, makes converts to right and left, and lives a life of astonishing property sharing, we may have to face the fact that if you want to be a community which seems to be taking the place of the temple of the living God, you mustn't be surprised if the living God takes you seriously. Seriously enough to make it clear that there is no such thing as cheap grace. If you invoke the power of the Holy One, the one who will eventually right all wrongs and sort out all cheating and lying, he may just decide to do some of that work already in advance. God is not mocked, as Paul puts it. Saying if we're the temple of God, we, we, we've got to take the holiness of God seriously. The, the, gospel, the gospel is not, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, so now I can go do whatever I want. Woohoo! Have you ever, you ever felt kind of that way? Have you ever come across Christians who maybe think that, well, I could, yeah, I'll just... Yeah, we can do that, and then I'll go to church tomorrow. That'll be great. I'll just, right, you know, and like intentionally, it'll be fine, right? That's not the gospel. See, when you think that way, it's like you're, you're missing what the Spirit is offering you. Paul goes on in Romans 7, he says, he basically says, well, because Jesus died for our sins, should we go on sinning? Should we just keep, you know, if I keep sinning, then grace will increase, right? Right, look at me, I'm such a sinner. You really, in fact, I'll sin more, and then you'll, you'll need to do, you know, the... The blood of Jesus will be even more effective. And he says, by no means. 
He says, no, because what he's getting at is that Jesus didn't just die to forgive you of your sin. Of course he did that. That no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, Jesus died. Jesus atoned for your sin, but he didn't just come to to forgive us of our sin, but to free us of our sin and, and to open up an entirely new way of living our lives. And if you're the temple of God, you're the people of God. Holiness is something we need to take seriously. But it, it goes deeper than that here because actually what's interesting is that the issue here isn't, isn't simply just Ananias' lack of holiness. That, that's actually not really the issue. What's really going on here is that he's faking holiness. He's pretending to be holier than he is. Now, he's, he's, not, he's not being struck down because he didn't give all of his money to the church. That's actually not why he's being struck down. There are plenty of people in the community that weren't, weren't doing this. It was kind of a voluntary thing. He's being struck down because he faked it. He's acting like he's holier than he really is. 1 John 1, 8 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. Right? Honesty, openness about your sin, that, that's where forgiveness comes. There is nothing that is more irreverent than faking holiness. This is why I'm always encouraging our church. We need to be a church where openness and honesty is at the very heart of our community. That you have a, a community, a, a place where you can honestly talk about what's going on in your mind and your heart and the difficulties and struggles and the sin in your life, knowing that there is grace, that there is forgiveness, that honesty and openness is absolutely crucial to the community of God. Yesterday, we had another installment of our elder development process. We're in, exciting, in an exciting time in the life of our church in which we're, we're developing elders. We're looking to see uh, with some potential elders um, if they might be in, in a place uh, to to help lead our church, and so we're doing this six-month process, and, and last month, I tried to set the tone in our meeting, and I tried to just be incredibly honest, and I shared uh, things about myself and even sin in my own life that probably not just going to share every Sunday from the pulpit, but I do need to share. I don't want to hide it, and so within the elders, it's important that we have that kind of honesty, and I was encouraged that yesterday, uh, Randy Ringner uh, he shared about his life, or each one, each one of them is getting called up each month to just kind of share about their life. And Randy went yesterday, and, and he shared some very personal things, and even his own sin, his own struggles. Because, you see, we, we, need, we need leadership that is open and honest about our struggles because there is nothing that God dislikes more than false holiness. Faking holiness, God will not be mocked. And you know what? Uh, Outsiders won't be fooled either. Nothing kills mission quite like hypocrisy. Nothing kills mission quite like when we claim to be holier than we really are. We're not claiming to be perfect. This is the point. We are sinners, but we're open and we're honest about it. So we see here the importance of authenticity, acknowledging what our sin is, where our lack of holiness is. But, but we also see in this then, we see a glimpse of what holiness looks like. We get a true glimpse of what holiness looks like. In the Old Testament, we, we, we see there's this dominant theme where holiness is often painted uh, in, in terms of religious acts, right? So, so, so Aaron needs to, he needs to purify himself, be in a holy state before he can go in, before he can go in and be in the presence of God. And so, so he goes through this extensive, you know, ritual, ritualistic process. He's got to bathe and wear certain garments and he's got to do certain sacrifices and all, and all of that. 
Um, but, but all of that, actually, that, that sort of ex- external symbolism was, the purpose of it was to remind us of an internal holiness. It's supposed to be a symbol that reflected what was going on in our hearts. And what does it look like when that heart, when you're living out holiness out of your heart, now what does that look like? And I think what we find in this passage is that holiness can be summed up with one word, generosity. Generosity. What we find in Acts chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, is a picture of generosity. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that Any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything that they have. Verse 34, there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. What does it look like for the people of God to be the temple, to be the very place where it's appropriate for God to reside? What does holiness look like? It looks like generosity. Of course, we see the same thing. Yes, in the Old Testament, again, it describes holiness in terms of ritualistic acts, but it's pointing to something deeper. And so then you also get Hosea, the prophet Hosea, saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And then Micah 6, 8 says, what does the Lord require of you? He says, do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. What does holiness look like? It manifests itself as generosity. Again, verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. Now, don't misunderstand what's going on here. This this is not saying, it's not establishing that within the early Christian community, they didn't have private property. That's not what this is. It's not what this is saying. There were communities at the same time, actually, uh, Jewish communities at the same time, a famous one being the Qumran community, the Dead Sea Scrolls, all that, uh, was a community where it seems like to actually be a part of that community, you had to sell everything. To even get into the community, you had to sell everything that you had, and it became community property. That's not what's going on here. you You didn't do this to become a part of it. It was sort of a voluntary thing. Sort of give you an example. I meant to bring it up here, but... Uh, my son Caleb, for Christmas, he got a dump truck. You can imagine a little dump truck here. And, and, um, and when he got this dump truck, uh, he got it from his, his uncle Alex and his Aunt Trinity. And, you know, when, when he opened it up, when it was you know, wrapped in the paper and, and whatnot, it, it didn't say uh, from Uncle Alex and Aunt Trinity to the community. That's not what it said on the present. It didn't say Uncle Alex and Aunt Trinity to the community. No, it said from Uncle Alex and Aunt Trinity to Caleb, okay? Make no mistakes. If you see that dump truck, it is Caleb's dump truck. But every day, my wife and I encourage him, Caleb, share your dump truck. Share it. Share it. Share it with your sister, Share it with your friends when they come over. Share it with your dad. It's actually kind of cool. I like, actually like playing with it. But share it. Share it. It's every day. Don't, don't just think of it like it's yours. Share it. Right? We teach our kids to share our toys, but do we share ours? That's what this is talking about. We teach our kid to, 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 to share their toys, but do we share ours? That's what this is talking about. It's, the, the early Christian community, they treated one another like family. They shared it like it was family. Generosity. Verse 34, there were no needy persons among them. It's an interesting verse. The, 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 the wording there is very intentional. <clears throat> it points back to Deuteronomy chapter 15, where Moses commands them, he says, there must not be any needy people in your community. And so here, what this is saying, Luke is saying that what Moses commanded was actually taking place in this community. 
actually doing what, what Moses had said. There were no needy people among them. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Because within the early Christian community, they believed that, that people's needs were more important than their possessions. They believed that people's needs were more important than their, their possessions. So they, they gave to those who were in need. I mean, they gave to those who were genuinely in need. Uh, they weren't silly about this, right? They understood that this sort of thing is complicated. They, they understood the difference between helping somebody who's in need and enabling somebody. They saw the difference in that, that this principle of generosity certainly is qualified. Paul qualifies it in 1 Thessalonians 5 where he says, if somebody doesn't work, he doesn't eat. Right? They understood there's a difference between enabling somebody and, and, and actually helping somebody who is in need, right? But the general principle was generosity, and so they always erred on the side of generosity. This is what I always tell our, our deacons and deaconesses who oversee our benevolence fund, which is a fund that is used specifically to care for needs of the community. We want to be wise. We, we don't want to hurt somebody by helping them. Sometimes helping can hurt if you're enabling. We, we don't want to do that, so we want to be wise. But whenever there's a, a question, when you're just not sure, we want to err on the side of generosity. Right, if we're going to make a mistake one way or the other, let's, let's be too generous. Let's be generous to a fault. That seems to be the, the undergirding principle amongst the early Christian community. They were, they were generous. It's no wonder, isn't it, that the early church grew? I mean, who wouldn't want to be a part of this? Who wouldn't want to be a part of a community that, that, that treats one another like family? And you're like, well, hopefully they don't treat one another like my family, right? I mean, some of us, maybe you have dysfunctional family. Maybe you're, you know, but, but this is talking about healthy family, the way family should be. And, and who wouldn't want to be a, who wouldn't want to be a part of this? You see, generosity fuels mission. Generosity Generosity fuels mission because Jesus goes on to remind the people of Israel that, that the family is intended to extend beyond just who's in there now. A huge part of his ministry, this is the central point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. He, guy says, who's my neighbor? And he thinks his neighbor is just the people within his, his tribe, his community. And Jesus is like, no, no, your, your neighbor extends Beyond that, it extends beyond your, your church family. We want it to spill over. Jesus says in, in, in John chapter 10, he uses the imagery of being a shepherd, and he's got sheep in his sheep pen. I care for the sheep in my sheep pen. But then he says, I also have sheep in another pen. I, and I want to reach them too. I want to bring them into the pen too. And so the early church, the generosity would spill over. As, as they were engaging with people in their community, the generosity would, 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 would spill over and they would welcome others in. And, and, and who, who wouldn't want to be a part of this? Generosity fuels mission. As we move into 2016, I want to encourage our church to be a generous church. I want to encourage us to be a community that doesn't see the things that we have as, as just ours, but as things that God has given us as stewards to use for His purposes. I want to encourage you to grow in that. Let 2016 be a year in which we just become increasingly generous. Generous with our time, generous with our abilities, generous with our resources, that we just seek to create this community, community of holiness that is reflected in generosity. Of course, why? What's, what's, the, what's the ultimate reason for this? What's the, the ultimate motivation for why we should give generously? Turn with me to Malachi chapter 3. This is 
on page 951 of your pew Bibles. Malachi chapter 3, and here the the prophet Malachi is, first he rebukes the people of Israel for their stinginess, for, for not recognizing that all of their resources are really is really God's, and they're just stewards of it. They've kind of forgotten that, and they're kind of using it however they want to use it. And, and so he actually says that they've robbed God. They've robbed God. And then in verse 10, he says this, though. <clears throat> Chapter 3, verse 10, page 951. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this says the Lord Almighty. I love that because it's the only place in the Bible where God tells us to test Him. The only place with our resources, our financial resources. He says, test me in this. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. You see, what is it that motivates us to give generously? We worship a generous God. We worship a God who says, you can't outgive me. Try. Try. Test me. Come on. You want to go a few rounds? Let's go. Let's see. Let's see who can, who can give more. You give. You want to try me? I'll, I'll, let's go. We give generously because we worship a generous God. What does it look like for God to throw open the floodgates of heaven? God's blessing can come in, in all kinds of different ways. God's blessing can come in the, in the form of financial resources. It definitely can. You, you give financially, and, and you may discover that you're going to receive more. Who knows why, but you just you, the financial resources are coming in. It, sometimes that's how it comes. It doesn't always come that way. God's blessings can come in a lot of, a lot of other different ways as well. I think it's really interesting where this verse comes in the Bible. We think about how does God give generously? What does it mean for him to throw open the floodgates of heaven? Well, if you'll notice, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. This is almost the very end of, of the Old Testament. Test me in this and I will... Throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. What would it look like for God to throw open the floodgates of heaven? What would that look like? Well, turn the page. And then turn the page again. Matthew 1, verse 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. How does God throw open the floodgates of heaven? In the person of Jesus Christ, God gives himself. Yeah, God can bless you financially. God can bless you with with success. God can bless you with a lot of things. But you know what? None of that, none of that, comes anywhere close to the heart of the gospel, which is that in Jesus Christ, God gives us himself. God gives us himself. How how much more generosity can you possibly have? My prayer for you is that as we move into 2016, you would know that there is the God of the universe has given himself for you, that you need nothing else that we might be able to echo with the psalmist in Psalm 73, 25, who says, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. That as you come to know God, as you come to know the God who has given himself in Jesus Christ, you realize you don't need anything else, that everything else is just an extra, and that out of that would flow your generosity. We don't... We don't give generously in order to get God to give generously. The heart of the gospel is that he has given. We love because he first loved us. That's why it wasn't compulsory that these people would sell their possessions before they became a part of the community, as it was in Qumran, for example. No, you you give out of out of gratefulness for the fact that God has welcomed you into his community. He has welcomed you into his presence.
You know, there was a, a mix-up with the bulletin today. Offering supposed to come after the message. I was kind of excited about that. But I think God wants to remind us that we don't give out of compulsion. God's reminding me, don't, 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 don't do anything that might lead them to believe that they've got, well, he just gave a message on generosity. I better at least fake like I'm putting something in the plate. No, no, you don't, you don't give out of compulsion. We give voluntarily as a response to the reality that God has given himself completely for us. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning and we praise you for your generosity. God, may we never lose sight of that. May we never think that there is anything in this world that could ever possibly satisfy in the same way that knowing that we are loved by you can. God, I pray for those of us today who maybe have tilted off course. God, we have lost sight of who you really are. We have sought to find meaning and purpose and joy in things other than you. God, I pray we wouldn't look to find joy in our ultimate joy in our careers or even in our marriages or in the things that we have. Those are all blessings which are intended to give us joy for sure, Lord. But I pray that we would know that you are, you are what we need and that you have given of yourself freely for us. God, out of that reality, might we be a generous community. Pray this all in Jesus' name.